so I thought as we start, I would kind of um, try to remind us kind of where we are in terms of preaching. Um, you might remember if you were here with us in the spring that we had a series that we called The Way of Wonder, and what we were saying in that time was that when we think of how, how God saves us through Jesus, we should recognize just how big this salvation is, that salvation is about more than, than only being forgiven by God, more than even about knowing that we have eternal life, that when Jesus saves us, he invites us into a better way, a way of love, a way of wisdom, a way of goodness that, he, that we call the way of wonder. This summer, you might notice different bulletin, different title, says, Behold Your God, but, and the focus has been in this to kind of consider just simply who God is, to look at God and reflect on Him, His glory. But what I want us to understand, actually, is that we're not really changing the subject. When we're talking about the life that we are given, it is a life that begins and ends with knowing God. And as we turn our face towards God, as we see Him more clearly, He actually helps us to understand our life better. The two go together, very closely connected. I say that partly because it's actually a somewhat controversial statement when it comes to the way that oftentimes Christians see things. You see, sometimes Christians see looking at life to be a distraction from looking at God. The more we are involved in life, the harder it is to see God. And, and conversely, if we really focus on God, if we focus on Jesus, that means we just really will stop paying as much attention to, to the life that we've been given. Perhaps some of you have heard the old song, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. Do you know that the chorus, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Do you, do you see what that's saying? It's suggesting that we kind of have to turn our eyes away from the stuff of life because it's distracting. And instead, we need to just look at Jesus and, and actually, as we look at Jesus, these things we will stop seeing much at all. They'll become strangely dim. I want to suggest that our psalm pushes us in a very different direction this morning. That what this psalm actually says is that, that if we see rightly, as we look at the world, we actually see Jesus. Not get distracted, but as we see the world rightly, we see God. And, and in the same way... As we turn our eyes upon Jesus, when we look at Him, the things of this world become strangely clear. Because as we see God, we see the world more clearly. What this psalm is going to be inviting us to do is, is to a different way of seeing, to a different way of, of seeing the world. In a sense, this is kind of like a visit to the optometrist's office. For the very first time in my adult life, at least, a few weeks ago, I went to see the eye doctor. Uh, I know I'm a procrastinator in so many ways, and, and basically what I discovered is, yes, I really do need glasses, and I should start recognizing that I'm 47 when it comes to my reading abilities. So, so there's that. And if you've been to the optometrist, you'll know how it oftentimes works. You kind of like go into this, like you're, you're looking into this machine, and everything seems super fuzzy. And the optometrist will kind of click a few dials and say, how do things look like this? And I think they know that it's going to be fuzzy, and you say, yeah, I can't see a thing. And then they do a little bit more, still fuzzy, and then, okay, how about this? And so suddenly, boom, everything becomes clear, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And there's a sense that that's actually what's happening here. The psalm is saying, I want you to try this way of seeing things on, because if you do, you will see the world more clearly. 
Now, there are a couple of things, a couple of ways of seeing that are common that, that in some ways the, the, the psalmist kind of rejects. Like, you, you can almost speak of like a few different kinds of glasses, of ways of seeing the world that the psalmist says, this isn't going to help you. So, so you might say we have the, one way of seeing the world, we could say that, that's common, is, is the way of, of, of pantheism. This way of seeing the world says that when you look at the world, you see God. God is not outside of the world. There is no transcendent. The world contains God. He is in the world. Now, there's a couple versions of this. There is the, the more spiritual version of this that like, you might see in the Eastern religion, where, where God is seen as like this, this life force, this energy that's around us and in us. The force in Star Wars is kind of a version of this. Sometimes people will talk about each of us having our souls a divine spark. God is just life and energy. Another version, the more kind of maybe Western version of seeing pantheism is, is what we would sometimes call materialism. When, when people say they're atheists, what they're denying is not that there is some ultimate reality. They're just denying that there is a personal God. Materialists are saying what you see is everything. Material, the laws of physics, atoms, that is what is eternal. That is what is ultimate meaning. And so by saying that, they're saying that is really what God is. That's pantheism. That's saying everything, God is in the world. Everything is God. It, the, the thing about this is, so this way of seeing, it's basically saying, if you look through these glasses, everywhere you look, you will see God. But the God that you see is not some personal being that stands beyond the world. It's some force, some presence. And, and the psalm writer here in Psalm 104 clearly re rejects that. At the very beginning, I don't know, there's like this kind of strange imagery. Let me try to paint it. He, it says God kind of lays for us with the sky a tent that's below him so that we can have kind of our own boundaries. And he erects a palace in the waters that is above the sky. Sometimes he will clothe himself in light. Sometimes he will ride on clouds like a chariot. The idea is we're here in this world and God is far above us. Or at the very end, it speaks of how for God, when he just, verse 31, if he just looks at the earth, it trembles. When he speaks to the mountains, they shake. The, the idea here is as, as beautiful and as glorious as this world is, God is beyond. He is transcendent. He is above it. The world knows its master and trembles at him. The, the way of seeing this world where God is just Part of the world, it's, it's fuzzy, it doesn't work. So there's a second way, you might say, a second pair of glasses for seeing this world. And that is the way of deism. Deism is a way of seeing the world where there's this awareness that, that when we look at this world, it's clear that this didn't just happen by accident, it's not just a force. Some, some person made this. But the idea of who this person is, he is so great, so transcendent, however we speak of this God, that we shouldn't assume that he'll be interested in just the mundane details of this world. I mean, does he really care about the blade of grass, the salmon swimming upstream, the babies cry? No, he's so big, he's so beyond that, that maybe he made this world, but he's very removed from us. He is distant. We, we might think of him as the man upstairs who really couldn't be bothered with something as small as, as we are. And so when you see the world through these eyes, through these lenses of deism, well, 
you don't really see God anywhere. I mean, maybe you see occasional reminders that he did something a long time ago, but now it's just you see science. You see the work that we do with this world. God is relatively absent when you look at the world. And the psalmist also suggests that that is clearly not right. Throughout this psalm, we see a picture of God being intimately involved. So verse 27 is just one example of this, where it says that all the living creatures look to you to give them their food in due season every day, every year as creatures eat. God is the one feeding them. He, he isn't far removed, the man upstairs. He is intimately involved. This, this too, is a, is a fuzzy way of seeing things. It doesn't work. The psalmist says there is a way of seeing the world where everything comes into focus. And that way of seeing is through the eyes or the lens of a covenant relationship with God. Throughout this psalm, there is a consistent way that he is referred to, God that is. You see it, verse 1, bless the Lord. And, and you notice how that's all in caps. Maybe some of you know that when the, words are all in, the, the word is all in caps, that's speaking of the divine name that God gave to his people to call him by, Yahweh. It's, it's, the, it's the name that people use if they know God and have a relationship with him. And that is the name that's used throughout. This, this is coming from the perspective of someone who already knows God. Someone who, you might say, has already experienced Psalm 103, which we looked at last week, of, of how this God is the God who knows them, who has rescued their lives from the pit, who loves them. And because they already know God, once they have that relationship with God, they, they can put on these glasses, this this way of seeing the world from the perspective of knowing a God who has loved them, and suddenly as they look, everything comes into focus. They, they look and they see evidences of God's work in everything. He is not a part of this world. He's the one who made this world, but he's intimately involved, and we see it in one place after another after another. And, and what the psalm is doing is saying, look with me. Let me tell you what I'm seeing. Look through these words so that as you look at the world, you too can see that God is everywhere. His evidence for him is everywhere around you. You will see him more clearly through these eyes. And so this morning, I would like us just to do that, to, to see as this psalmist wants us to see, to, to look through these words, to look at the world through the eyes of faith. And there are just three things that I would like us to, hi to, to highlight, to recognize as this psalm invites us to look at. Three things that we see about God as we look at the world. So the first thing is, we, you know, we, we obviously can't hit everything. It's a long passage. But the first thing that we see kind of repeated throughout our passage is the, the ordered wisdom of God that is just evident wherever we look. So, so verse 5 um, reads that God is the one who sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. It's poetic language saying that God is the one who establishes stability. He made this world in a way where it's consistent. Have you ever thought about just how, how surprising it is that our world is so consistent and predictable? Um, like, let, let me just ask you, like, I have a glasses case here. What do you think will happen when I drop it? Do you think when I let go, will it go flying off? When I let go, will it just kind of hover there? What do you think is going to happen? Let's just, let's just see. 
Okay, so it dropped. I wonder if any of you were shocked by that. My guess is you weren't, and here's why. Because that's always what happens. Every single time we drop something in this world, unless it's in water or something like that, it goes down. But why? Why is it that again and again gravity works the same way? Why is it that every day the sun rises, that every day the speed of light is the same? This might seem like a dumb question. You might just go, well, because that's always what it does. But, but you know that like philosophers have spent their old, whole lifetime trying to understand this question. David Hume said there is no logical reason for why this should work. There is no logical reason that we can say because it happened seven days in a row, it's going to happen again. I don't know why it keeps working the way that it does. And what the psalmist says is, well, the Lord established the foundations. When we see this consistency, it is God's hand that is keeping things together, acting the same way day after day after day. And it is not just this, this consistency of order that we see in, verse, uh, in 5 through 9. Verse 9 you set a boundary that they, that is the waters, the waters that cover the world, a boundary that they may not pass. You've, you've made it so that the things that are chaotic stay in one area and land stands in another area. You, you provide order. And, and that order extends, if, you, if we go way much further into verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You set an order between land and water, between day and night. You've set structure and boundaries. And the reason for these things we are seeing, shown is because this order allows life to happen. So he's created trees. Verse 16 tells us that, and then after that, verse 17, these trees are important because the birds build their nests. The stork has her home. And the mountains are for the wild goats. The reason why it's important that there's sun and moon, it says, is that way the animals can kind of do all of their hunting during nighttime and they go to bed and humanity wakes up during the daytime and they do all their work and it all fits together. God we are being told, makes this world ordered so that life is possible. And that, too, is something that people who look at it and think about it carefully find extraordinary. There is a scientist by the name of Francis Collins, who for a long time was the director of the National Institute of Health, well-known scientist. Here's how he puts it. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist of the universe, it looks as if it, that is the universe, knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force that have precise values. If, if any one of those constants was off even by one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a trillion, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. He is marveling. Do you see how ordered this world is? It is an impossibility almost that somehow life could exist, and yet it does. It is an impossibility that all things could hold together as they do, and yet it does. There is an order. And the psalmist says, yes, because of the wisdom of God. In verse 24, he sums it up. How manifold are your works. In wisdom you made them all as God speaks the world into existence. His, his wisdom are like blueprints giving structure and order. And what that tells us is every time we look around and see the order of the universe, we are seeing the fingerprints of God. We are, we are just getting a hint of his glory who is so wise and ordered. 
Many of you are about to go back to school, some to college, some to high school or elementary school. Some of you just are students just as a part of your life. Do you realize that when you are studying cellular regeneration or, or string theory or supernovas, as you are looking at this, you are studying the very wisdom of God. It's everywhere. As we look at this world rightly, we see the ordered wisdom of God. But we also see something more. We see this creative life that flows from God as well. Because the order that God makes is not just this static, flat, boring order like, I don't know, graph paper or concrete storage facilities just have nothing. The the, the order that we experience in this world is one that has a, a, a wildness, an unpredictability, a creativity that makes this world interesting. Everywhere we look, we see things like like freedom and, and beauty and love, all of these things that we speak of with a single word, life. And this, too, is something that, that thinkers struggle to be able to understand, especially people who want to say that this matter, this world is all there is, because if that is true, if all you see is all there is, then this world is just one really impressive but complicated machine. And that means freedom isn't real. It's just something that we believe. Things aren't actually unpredictable. It's all just a machine spitting out its effects. That means things like we think of as beauty, that's just, you know, brain impulses. What we think of as love is just a biological product of evolution. It's all phony. Except there's something in the very heart of who we are that says no, that says no, we, we know that there is life, there is love, there is beauty, there is creativity, and, and here we see in this psalm, yes, because God is the living God and he is the source of all life. So we noticed how before, verse 9, speaking about how there are boundaries and mountains that keep the water from overflowing, but, but notice how kind of almost intention with this, in, in verse 10, we also see that God takes some of that water and he causes it to gush forth in the valleys, break through the mountains, and this water it becomes this metaphor of life. Wherever this, this energetic, somewhat chaotic water goes, we see life. And so it speaks about how They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. I don't know if you guys are are Planet Earth fans. Our family enjoys Planet Earth with this very understated narration by David Attenborough as he describes all the things that you see in the world around. And there's one scene where he talks about wild donkeys. And you see them as he speaks about them just kind of galloping around in the middle of the wilderness. And you see as they're galloping, two of them starting to fight with each other. And he starts explaining that, that males do that because they want to kind of stake out territory to make sure they can attract plenty of females. And in his understated ways, you see them like all biting and attacking. He's like, it's a frisky business. And then as this frisky business kind of keeps going, eventually one male wins out and the other one leaves. But then David Attenborough says, well, things aren't necessarily that good for him either because the females come and go as they please and much of their behavior seems unfathomable to an outsider. And you just see wildness and unpredictability and life. And that comes from God. 
The, the river keeps going, and, and it talks about how now beside the, them, the birds of the heaven dwell. They sing among the branches. You can imagine as the streams go, there are trees that, that grow up, and those trees allow birds. And if you've ever been in an area with lots of birds, sometimes it can be almost like a cacophony of different songs. There's the, the sea bee of the chickadee, there's the, the hoot of the owl at nighttime. When we were in Australia, there was this crazy sound of the kookaburra that sounded like it had some crazy laughter going on. All of these songs, unpredictable, these melodies, unlike anything we hear, and that comes from God, who is the living God. We, we see that the water continues to flow. It speaks of how it, it, it waters the mountains, and the watering of the mountains in verse 14 causes the grass to grow for feeding. So now there's life for animals, but it's not just grass for animals. Notice that this water that's feeding the mountains allows, allows us to make a cabernet that gladdens the heart, allows us to, fresh, uh, to, to bake fresh bread to give us strength. There is this beautiful things that can come out of it, and, and that too comes from the living God. If we kind of trace where the stream goes near the very end of the psalm, we, we, we see it going into the ocean, and it speaks in verse 25, here is the sea, great and wide, which, which teems with creatures innumerable. It's so full of life, it's full of fish, and there go the ships, and Leviathan, Leviathan is, is the ancient word sometimes for speaking of whales, Leviathan, which you formed to play in it, this, this Whales just kind of like jumping up and splashing against the water. There is life and, and there is vitality and, and it all comes from God. In fact, it's not just this image of this river of life giving life that comes from God. If you, if you continue on a little bit later, it speaks of, of, of the breath of life. So you have this play on words where you have the, the, the breath coming from God and when you take forth your spirit, which is actually the same word as breath, they are created, sorry, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground in verse 30. The idea is that whatever breath any life has in this world comes from God. He is the one who breathed life into existence. His spirit is the source of all life. God, yes, is a God who is ordered. He's a God who is wise, but God is also a God who is, who is wild who is creative, who is unpredictable, who is beautiful, who is the source of love. And this, too, we see when we just look at the world. Some of you are, are extroverts or even introverts who just really love people, and, and there's something that you find endlessly interesting about other people. And, and I want you to understand that when you see people and when you find them delightful, you are seeing the handiwork of God. Some of you are artists, whether it's through baking or through pottery or through gardening. There's something that you just love about creating. I want you to understand that when you are creating, you are communing with a God who, him, who himself is endlessly creative. When we look at the world and see it rightly, we see God involved everywhere. One more thing I want us to, to notice from this psalm, we, we've spoken about how how God is a God who, who brings order. He's the God who brings life. 
And both of these things are things that people struggle to understand. They, they cannot account if they're looking through the long, wrong lenses. Only through the relationship of God that we have can we begin to see it. There is one more question I think especially people struggle to really understand. Maybe this is the, the question of beneath them all, and that is why is there anything? I mean, why is there the world at all? Why do we exist at all. There is no way that any scientist can answer from science because science is not built to answer those questions. Why? And here, as we understand this question, we see this third theme that as we look around the world, we see the inexplicable goodness of God everywhere. So our psalm doesn't spend much time answering the why question. Most of the time it speaks of the how, of how everything here is constructed by God. He's the one who makes it and sustains it. But there are occasional moments where we have hints given as to why God is doing what he is doing. And the hints, I think, come through in a couple of, of, of kind of repeated ideas. So one of them is the idea of satisfaction. So verse 13, in reflecting on how God sends water to the world, says the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Verse 16 literally says, the trees are watered in a way that satisfies them. And then verse 28 tells us that when God opens his hand, creatures are satisfied with good things. Again and again, we see there seems to be this connection. When God makes, he gives, and there is satisfaction. And then there's another theme similar of the idea of rejoicing. So, Verse 15 speaks of how God in giving life gives humanity wine in order to gladden, that is, to bring joy to the heart. The idea of joy is repeated near the end, verse 34, when the psalm after, psalmist, after just looking at everything and, and recognizing the, all the glory of this world, says, I rejoice in the Lord. His experience of creation leads to joy. And then in between these two times, there is also this prayer in verse 31. May the Lord rejoice in his works. And, and here's what I think we are meant to see. That God made this world. He gave all of these things to bring satisfaction to his creatures. He gave this to give us joy. And he actually rejoices in our joy and satisfaction when we find it in him. We might say God made this world so that we could glorify him by enjoying him forever. And when you think about that for a moment, what you see is that everywhere around us, in every moment, even right now, it is overflowing It's not the only thing we see. This, world, this, this psalm really focuses on the beautiful, glorious aspects, and there, of course, is another aspect. There is a way that sin has broken and, and corrupted. And you can see, actually, at the very end, it feels like this strange interruption at the, the very end, right before the very final words. He speaks about the desire for sinners to be consumed and the w wicked to be no more. And I think what it is is as he is seeing the beauty of what God has done, to, to recognize how sin tarnishes it just grieves him and makes him long for it to be over so that this world might be the way it was supposed to be. But even still, as he acknowledges, even all of this brokenness, even still, I will bless the Lord and praise him because everywhere I look, I see his goodness. And, and don't you feel that? 
There is an extravagance to this reality. Why are there so many stars, some of which we will never see? Why are there so many colors, so many kinds of insects, so many colors of flowers? It's just overwhelming. Why do we get so many different kinds of connections with people, so many different people, so much enjoyment we can have? It's just overflowing with goodness. And when we see it the way we're supposed to, we realize this comes from a God who loves. This comes from the hand of a God who is generous and delights to give and to give and to give some more. When we enjoy anything, we are meant to recognize this too is a reminder of God who is good. Psalm says, look, see what I'm seeing. Things will only come into focus as you look at this world from the perspective of faith. And when you do, God becomes more real to you and the world becomes clearer to you. Now, this, this psalmist asked us to kind of put on the eyes, put on the glasses of a relationship with, with Yahweh, we said, we actually, you might say, have even clearer glasses that we are allowed to use because we know God not just as, as Yahweh, but as the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and John tells us that the Father made the world through the Son, the Son who is wisdom. When we see order and wisdom in the world, we see the work of the Son. And God speaks of how God uh, and, and we know how God uses the Spirit. The Spirit is the giver of life, the one who brings life. Wherever we see life and joy, we see the work of the Spirit. And what's more, we understand in a way that they could not possibly understand centuries ago just how much this world has God's grace at the center of it. Because, because God, seeing the sin that is corrupting it, rather than just abandoning this world, gives His Son, and as His Son takes sin and death to the cross, it's not the end of the story. When God speaks life into Jesus, when he sends the spirit of life resurrecting, it's not just Jesus' spirit, it's Jesus' body, the body that's a part of this world. And what God is declaring for all the world to know is that he is not yet done with this beautiful world, that he is committed to redeeming this world in all of its order, that he's committed to redeeming this world and giving it life again, that his intent for grace will never end, and he will not rest until this beautiful world is made whole again. And when we understand that, then, then we are invited, as we look through these glasses, to say what the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. 